Welcome, everyone, to Everyday Holiness, a Faith ND podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is once again your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service, and we're glad to have you with us. And I am pleased to be joined by Jessica Keating Floyd. Jess received her Master's of Divinity from Notre Dame in 2013, and she currently serves as the Program Director for the Notre Dame Office of Life and Human Dignity in the McGrath Institute for Church Life. Jess, thanks so much for being here. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dan. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. So we'll start at the beginning. Where did you grow up, and what were some important memories of your childhood? Hmm. I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., same house all my life. (laughs) I mean, faith wasn't a big part of my experience as a child. We certainly attended religious services more than just at Christmas and Easter, Mm -hmm. but daily prayer wasn't, I think, a part of a central part of my experience of childhood. Hmm. Yeah, some really important, I think, markers for me in in growing up were some challenges that I had as a young teenager and really okay. what it took to overcome those mm-hmm. and to realize my own strength in being able to move past some difficult experiences. Mm-hmm. And I was also really involved in sports as a child. Sure. I loved baseball, Hmm. and actually my dad taught me how to keep score, and we would go to Orioles games (laughs) frequently during the summer, and and my parents always tell me the story of how, you know, I went to Orioles games since I was probably four or five, and how miserable it is to take a five-year-old to a baseball game. (laughs) All I wanted was my nachos, my cotton candy, and then I wanted to leave. (laughs) But sort of the commitment that they had to to that experience and to that being sort of a central experience of our childhood. My dad loved baseball, and so he really instilled that love of baseball in both my sister and myself, taught us both how to keep score, really taught us a lot about the game and the history of the game and shared a lot of stories about his childhood experiences watching some of the greats of baseball. Yeah. And I think that, you know, while my my childhood wasn't sort of steeped in the Catholic faith, I do think that the attention and the discipline it requires to watch a baseball game, and not only to watch it, but to enjoy it, mm-hmm. is something that, in looking back, I see as sort of tilling the ground for the capacity to be able to pray, to engage in a life of faith, which isn't always interesting. If sure. anyone's ever watched baseball, there are <laughs> right. a lot of boring parts of baseball. But when you love it, you love those those boring parts, seeing, you know, a batter come in and out of the batter's box, seeing the the pitcher walk around the pitcher's mound. It all sort of makes sense within the narrative of baseball, which is a slow narrative. And so I'd say that if there was any one aspect of childhood that prepared me for a real living faith, it was probably our experience of going to Orioles games yeah. growing up as as a child and and the discipline of attention that that taught taught me. Yeah, that's such a neat perspective, not one that as far as I can recall we've we've had on the podcast before, but I I'm a fan of, of baseball myself and I definitely can understand what you mean with the there's the certain traditions and rituals and the unwritten rules of baseball and those things are debated and I know baseball is trying to 
speed up the game and with the pitch clock and the minors and things like that. But I think you're right that it is a metaphor for life because there's moments of anticipation and moments of, of great excitement and elation, but surrounding that oftentimes is moments of, well, what, what's going on here? What does this mean? And yeah, for a young kid, that can be, that can be hard. I've watched my own sons as they've gone. We've got the South Bend Cubs here locally, the uh, high A affiliate for the Chicago Cubs, but we've gone to the Cubs games over the course of time. And in the early years, it was like, where's the bounce house? Where's the splash pad? And as they have gotten into baseball more, yeah, they're tuning in and they're, they're seeing that. So that's a neat aspect of your childhood I can certainly relate to. Yeah. And another thing about baseball is the season, I think, is one of the longest seasons yeah. in professional sports. I don't love all the efforts to speed up the game because I think that it really it diminishes building that capacity for for attention. But baseball also thinking about it as sort of like a metaphor or analogy for life. It's a slog. The season mm-hmm. is a slog. Yeah. <laughs> and it has lots of ups and downs. You know, as an Orioles fan, we're never really like in the playoffs <laughs> yeah. or super contending. So you're always in this this posture of hope, <laughs> often dashed hope, yeah. but um, <laughs> but of hopefulness. So yeah, I think that's a really apt way to to describe the game as sort of this metaphor for life. Yeah, and a previous editor for Faith Indy, Josh Nome, I have to give him credit for this image, but he once talked about the image of a walk-off home run as mm. the image of heaven that, uh, I love that. You've, you've got all your teammates your family and friends there and they're they're welcoming you home when you're running home you know at the end the end there and to, to the celebration i i think of josh and i think of that every time that i see a walk-off home run for sure <laughs> that's beautiful so you you talked about some of these good aspects of your childhood but also some challenging aspects how do you think you were able to overcome some of those things and persevere despite those difficulties? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think I think we often think as Catholics, as probably people who are really committed and practicing their faith, that if that isn't a part of a family's life, that there might not be goods that are happening. But I really think like my my family life, my relationship with my parents, which hasn't always been easy Mm -hmm. that has formed me in a deep way and really enabled me to to overcome some real challenges Mm -hmm. to have parents that advocated for me that not in a helicopter parent kind of way but in a we want this child to flourish Mm -hmm. so i think that i think the school community that i was a part of or became a part of the supportiveness of friends of of my immediate family were really were really moments and extended moments of I think beauty and grace as as God sort of prepared me for this next moment in my life. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's hard to see in the moment of our suffering and the crucible, so to speak. But sometimes looking back on it, you can see with a little more perspective moments of grace within the suffering and Mm. i mean you think about jesus on the way to the cross and the stations the people who help him the people who pray for him along the way that there's little there's little bits of respite even during his own passion and that's really hard to see when you're in the midst of it but it sounds like 
looking back, you can recognize that even during some of the more difficult times that God was God was there through some of these relationships and support you had. Yeah, and I think something that strikes me about my childhood was the presence of both of my parents. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, I was born in the 80s, so it's not that different than how life is now, but life has certainly sped up. Yeah. And our attention is certainly divided in many more ways than it was in the 80s and early 90s when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. But I, I vividly recall that my, my dad, when he came home from work, was there and he came home around you know 435 he was a high school counselor and he was present he might not have been engaging with us he might have been sitting reading a book but i just had those memories of the presence of both of my parents and the time they took with one another for their marriage as being witnesses to me of the work that goes into marriage but also simply the importance of being in the same space as other people i think I just wonder if children have that same experience of their of their parents being there, not engaged in sort of a particular task that needs to get done, but simply being present to the mess of family life. Mm-hmm. I'm not a parent, so I don't know, but but I wonder about that. Well, and as we thankfully emerge from the pandemic, I think a lot of families got a heavy dose of that, of all of a sudden. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, I guess we're not going anywhere, but we're going to be <laughs> together. So we need to figure out what that means. And I've actually talked with parents recently, and we've sort of chuckled to each other, like there was something sacred about that time that already feels a little bit lost as mm. as things pick back up and, and the busyness ensues again. And how do we... In a, in a bit of a defensive way, hold on to some of that unscheduled time, some of that unscripted yeah, time. And, that. Yeah, just to, to be with each other and, and grow in that way. I think that's, that's a really neat point that you make. Yeah, I also really remember my family had dinner together every night. Mm-hmm. And in general, we weren't allowed to watch TV at dinner unless it was an Orioles game on mute. <laughs> Priorities. And those were special treat days. Yeah. But we we gathered around the table every night and dinners weren't always like particularly pleasant. There might have been fights, but that was something that was just I mean, I didn't even think about it as a kid as a negotiable mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. as something that wouldn't happen. I think there were, you know, a few times in high school where because of sports, one my sister and I might have missed dinner, but it was a staple fixture mm-hmm. of my childhood was having dinner fighting with my sister off to the side of the table <laughs> every night of my childhood yeah. and every night of my, my teen years, that presence of my parents. Again, probably as a teenager, I would have complained about it, but looking back on it now, just, just the remarkable, the remarkable nature of sort of that commitment to eating together, to being together in the ordinariness of life. Mm-hmm. The middle innings of the game. Exactly. <laughs> the fifth and sixth innings. That's right, yeah. <laughs> well, good. Well, thank you. I, I think that is inspiring to hear, and and I people have shared that before. I can remember Father Pat Reedy, our very first guest way back when in our first season, talked about that a lot, that his family always ate dinner together and something to, to really aspire to. Mm-hmm. So... 
as you made your way through high school and, and began to develop your gifts, where did that lead you in terms of thinking about college and, and what you were thinking about doing with your life? Yeah. So I ran three seasons of track and cross country in high school. So I was a three season runner. Okay. And so I was really, when I was looking at colleges, I was looking at colleges where I might be able to run. And my dad being, he was a head guidance counselor at a local high school. So very helpful when it came to college searches. And he knew both of his daughters well enough to sort of not insist, but direct us to schools that he thought we would would be good for us, that we would grow in, and that would appeal to us. So I did a summer of service in high school, accompanying a developmentally disabled child. And my dad sort of like, I think, saw that spark and interest in service. Mm -hmm. And so even though I definitely, I think my senior year of high school told my parents I was going to become a Buddhist as we drove home from Christmas mass. (laughs) Just to see sort of what would happen. Test the waters. (laughs) He nudged me in the direction of a lot of Catholic schools. Not exclusively, but but I ended up going to St. Joe's University in Philadelphia, a Jesuit college. Mm -hmm. And I actually, I ran my first year there and got injured and actually ended up not running for, for the remainder of college. But becoming very involved in my second semester in a service learning class and just finding a real passion there and took several service learning classes. And I had no idea what I wanted to major in when I got to college. A real gift of my parents was to give me the permission to study whatever they said, study what interests you. Mm -hmm. Study what brings you joy and makes you happy. What you major in in college isn't going to have a determinative effect on what you can do with your life, probably. Sure. And so I got really interested in, I loved my philosophy class, I loved my sociology class, so I ended up double majoring in philosophy um, and sociology and doing a lot of service learning classes, getting involved in the service learning program, and really engaging Catholic social teaching, discovering it for the first time, right. and finding it rich and beautiful. I think I didn't yet understand or appreciate the depth to which it was, it grows out of the central mysteries of the faith Mm -hmm. and the sacraments. But I do remember being just really captivated by those experiences and wanting to engage in more service and to, to end up, I ended up serving after college as well. So that was sort of God surprises you because I was going to St. Joe's to run. I didn't end up running and I ended up getting really involved in in sort of the campus ministry, service learning aspects of the university, which I wasn't expecting as a freshman. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure not. I was going to ask you that, that we heard that aspects of your faith weren't as, as strong growing up. We all have that time in life where we have to take ownership of it for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Did you find yourself really deepening your faith at college? Was that a bit of a turning point for you? Yeah, that's, I would call that one turning point. Okay. You know, conversion isn't all as all at once, and it's never done. Right. So that was sort of, I think, you know, Augustine talks about conversion of the will, intellectual conversion. I think that was really intellectually Catholic social teaching interested me intellectually. Okay. I was still not terribly invested in Catholicism for most of college. It really wasn't until my senior year that I sort of realized, 
oh, I need to become Catholic and I don't really know why, but I have to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and at that point, I still, you know, disagreed with a lot of the church's teachings, but really felt this pull to be confirmed as a Catholic. I hadn't been confirmed in high school. I was confirmed as a Lutheran. Okay. And yeah, so started exploring confirmation. Unfortunately, the parish that I went to for confirmation formation gave me a set of cassette tapes and sort of sent me home and told me <laughs> when to come back to mass. So my RCIA formation was not very good, okay. but really feeling compelled to become Catholic without sort of knowing why yet, hmm. but knowing that it had to do with the witness of the church and her commitment to the poor being really attractive and really things that I desire to be a part of. Yeah, it's always interesting to hear how people are drawn to that deepening of their faith. And for us, the deepening of their Catholic faith, that sometimes it starts out very young and it's just baked into, well, this is who who we are and what our family does. And other times it's the advocacy for the poor or environmental concerns or concerns mm-hmm. about peace. But uh, I always enjoy hearing those faith stories of conversion or reversion where God is trying to often find a way in whatever that's right. Way ignites our hearts the most, and it sounds like for you it was this first this intellectual curiosity with Catholic social teaching, and then a deepening to you know that pull on your heart. That's right. Yeah, and there are many doors into the Catholic faith, mm-hmm. and I think sometimes I forget that. Sometimes I think the church forgets that mm-hmm. that there are many ways in, and that way in then requires accompaniment to deepen. Mm-hmm. So neither to, yeah, I could see, you know, I could see there being, have been, having been people who would write me off at that point in my life because I, you know, really didn't agree with certain views of the church. Hmm. But that, that accompaniment was really critical and it was gentle too. Like my like embrace of the church's teaching on some life issue questions didn't happen overnight. It happened over a really long period of time and growing conviction. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate your honesty there. I think that's a very real thing, and it's important for for us to hear. In terms of this postgraduate service, what led you to that? What did you do there? Yeah, so I spent five years teaching at a Jesuit high school in Pine Ridge, South Dakota, on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Mm-hmm. Teaching high school theology, I had yeah no training in high school theology besides <laughs> my three required courses, and the fact that I had been recently confirmed. So it was it was an incredibly intense and difficult challenge, especially my first couple of years. I didn't have any sort of teacher training either. I came in with like all of these ideas, but had no idea how to do that translation work for, for high school students and in a, a different cultural setting. Sure. So really struggled my first year of teaching quite a lot. The program is its own volunteer program. It sort of mirrors Jesuit Volunteer Corps. You could volunteer for up to three years, and then um, I actually ended up staying on two years as a full-time faculty member. And it's so hard to put that experience into words and Mm -hmm. to try to break it open. But it was a time of, I think, profound encounter with God, profound encounter with my own limitations. Mm. There were real moments, I think, of desolation. But there was also, especially in that first year, where sort of things were 
were not going well. Mm -hmm. And yet at the end of that first year, I just, I knew in a way that I like hadn't been sure of anything else. Like I was so sure that this was where I was being called to be. Mm -hmm. And sort of the administration was like, this might not be the best fit for you. <laughs> for you. Um, and I was like, no, I, this is this is where I'm supposed to be. Huh. Um, and so they they you know I stayed on a second year, and that was confirmed in sort of in spades in the next four years that this was where God was calling me to be. Where I had I think a really the formational experience of being not in the majority, mm-hmm. being sort of like a white person among people who did not share my ethnic and racial um, makeup. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, that has been important as I think about sort of things that are happening in our country now, of that experience of, of feeling like Abraham did, being called out of his own land. Mm-hmm. It's never, it's never going to be the experience of being a minority, but feeling like you're a stranger sort of in, in a space and learning what that means for me it was profoundly a profoundly spiritual experience of i remember meditating on the call of abraham a lot while i was out there of god calling him out of the land to be a wanderer to to follow god to be a stranger and to be find some way of being at home in that Mm -hmm. and that that's really sort of encapsulates the experience i think that i had as a teacher at red cloud high school Many gifts received a lot of gifts, wisdom of people that I worked with, people that I lived with. But I think that sort of that image of Abram being called by God is an image that was really powerful for me when I was there. And it's continued to be a way that I sort of encapsulate that experience. Mm-hmm. It sounds pretty incredible, you know, and not something that I think a lot of times reservations with with different Native American populations, there's sort of a invisible barrier mm-hmm. both ways, right? In terms of uh, an uncertainty about visiting or, or going into a, an environment like that. And then also a question about what would it look like as a Native American to leave this place and, mm-hmm. and go into the wider world where my experience would be very different. Mm-hmm. If you could say a bit about how you grew as a person and how you think maybe in your interactions with some of the people there, they were able to grow because of their time with you. Oh, gosh. I'm not sure I can identify ways people grew from being in contact with me. (laughs) But I think I really grew in an appreciation of what it meant and what it means to do, to be part of cross-cultural ministry, mm-hmm. what it means to engage cultures that are not my my own, you know, native culture mm-hmm. in meaningful ways. And that was a real challenge, I think, for me going in. I had done a lot of reading and research on, you know, cultural development and enculturation and cross-cultural dialogue, and that's fantastic. But what it looks like on the ground is not something you can replicate in in a book or in research. And so to really have that experience of, again, of learning my own limitations, both of the culture in which I was raised 
and my limitations just as a human being Mm -hmm. and to embrace those not as something necessarily bad but as just realities about myself sure so in a way those the difficult moments in that those experiences i see as as moments in which god was building i think humility because graduating college, I got like a lot of awards and I just thought I was kind of the best. Um, and to really, yeah, be humbled in that. And I right. think that that's an experience that that not a lot of people have to not just go and serve for a week, which is good, mm-hmm. but to really put down roots in a place that is not your own and to live sort of in that tension and where people People didn't care about the fact that I had won awards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, people didn't care about what I had studied. They cared about whether I could be present to them mm-hmm. and whether my students, for my students, whether I loved them mm-hmm. ultimately, which didn't make, you know, the, the content of what I was teaching less important, but had to do with like a style of engagement. And so, so I found that really a profound experience in shaping who I am now and how I sort of enter into conversation with just people who are different from me, be that whether it's ethnically or racially or just in personalities. Mm -hmm. But to really enter into experiences and relationships with others in in a way that wants to, that's more open-handed. It makes a lot of sense just in terms of, I think about your work and a lot of these themes here, like the intrinsic dignity of every single person and going in with that in mind, even when some of the differences are very stark or, or seem to be the elephant in the room, to keep that in mind and to really challenge ourselves sometimes and to say, to continue to be present and treat this person with the dignity that he or she deserves. Yeah. Also, that experience helped me to not only to learn what it means to do intercultural ministry or to engage with people who are, for whatever reason, different from you and have different life experiences than you and hold different truths than you. It gave me a real capacity, I hope, for empathy, which is really important in the work I do now, of really trying to see the good in what somebody that who I might disagree with is trying to pursue and to really try to, as you said, hold on to, I think so much of our, our public discourse is forgetful of the inherent dignity of the person who we're opposed to or the person with whom we disagree to Mm -hmm. really hold on to that fundamental conviction. Yeah. It's so important. And, and then it helps bond us to each other, which it sounds like, I mean, the fact that you stayed two more years and continued to put down roots and deepen those that you had really made inroads and deep relationships. And even though it may not be, you may not be able to see it. I'm sure, I'm sure you made a a tremendous impact on a lot of the, the students there and the people you had there, but you did choose to move on. So what was next for you after your time at the reservation. Yeah, so at the end of my time teaching at Red Cloud, I was being called on to function in more and more of a ministerial ministerial role, which, you know, is 
understandable. I was a theology teacher and mm-hmm. I had started taking classes to remediate some of my lack of knowledge. I started taking classes actually at Notre Dame. Ultimately, I felt like if I were to continue in my role as a teacher, I needed more formation. Okay. So I was very open to the idea of, of going back after I finished my MDiv. But I really recognized that, that I needed deeper formation than I had, both intellectual, spiritual, human formation. And that really, that is what caused me to sort of look at what possibilities there were for that. I also had a friend who had worked with me on the reservation who had, was already in the MDiv and sort of encouraged me to, to look at it. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of what the immediate circumstances of being called upon to function in more of a pastoral role and just really coming up against my own limitations in terms of you know, teaching theology without a lot of theology background is what really drove me to sort of look at other programs that could help me to grow not only in my knowledge of the faith, but also to grow in my own spiritual development, my own human formation as well. So that's sort of how I came to Notre Dame. Great. And if you could share with us a bit, what was that experience like once you got here? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the first year was very hard. Mm. Um, I think I was really experiencing probably, looking back on it now, a lot of sort of reverse culture shock. Hmm. Even, you know, so I applied to Notre Dame and I applied to BC and I got into both and I sort of thought to myself, I live in a town right now where there are two stoplights. I don't think I can move to Boston okay. and <laughs> and really hack it, I think. And especially knowing Boston drivers. I was yeah. like, I'm going to get killed in the crosswalk. <laughs> so the fact that I already knew some some folks at Notre Dame and the fact that Notre Dame was in the Midwest, I was like, this will be sort of just an easier transition. Okay. So, and I'm sure it was more gentle than if I had pursued studies at BC just in terms of pace of life. It was still really hard. The first year was really, really challenging as I tried to sort of navigate the graduate school world, again, with not a lot of theological training or academic theological training. But I think, yeah, over the course of the MDiv, I really, that is what gave me an opportunity to place my my love of Catholic social teaching into the context of the faith Mm -hmm. and into the sacramental life of the church and start to see how, how CST is an expression of the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. It's sort of the Eucharist in action in the world. And I hadn't had any of that formation either in confirmation or even in, you know, my work as a teacher, but to really sit with, with those profound realities and to realize that the Catholic Church offers a vision of the whole that is compelling and convicting and something that I wanted to give my life over to. Mm-hmm. So I, I remember the MDiv being like a time of, I can't believe I didn't know this, or, <laughs> you know, why wasn't I taught this as a child, yeah. or in confirmation class, but just really seeing the beauty of the faith for the first time and seeing it from the perspective of faith. I think a lot of times the church tends to get interpreted as another sort of club or sociological institution, Mm -hmm. but to really see and contemplate the church, 
the Eucharist, the sacraments as divine mysteries, as sort of the most fundamental truths and not in a way that they're not practical, but like the Trinity is the most fundamental, most practical thing you can actually talk about. So Mm. I think that that was what that time really meant for me was it was sort of like the introduction to Catholic faith that I wish I had gotten okay. <laughs> as a confirmandi, but I finally got to to really engage in intellectual thought in community formation. As you know, Dan, part of the MDiv mm-hmm. is formation in community with others, both with seminarians and with lay students, develop a prayer life. I remember going into the MDiv, I didn't know what the Liturgy of the Hours was. Mm-hmm. So learning how to pray the Liturgy of the Hours and and the Psalms and the beauty of that sort of rhythm of life. So all of those things, I think the MDiv was both uh, ushered me sort of like it was a transition out of the work I had been doing previously, but it was also sort of this transition to the next sort of phase of, of my work. A really important experience for me in the MDiv was taking a class on Catholic radicalism Hmm. and I did it as a directed reading with one of my classmates, and it was taught by Michael Baxter, who was former Holy Cross priest and helped start the Catholic Worker in South Bend. Mm-hmm. And I remember sort of, you know, complaining about pro-life people only caring about babies and not about the poor. And he just sort of like said very bluntly, "Well, if you think that the unborn child is a person, is a human, then this is like." the greatest atrocity of our time. Mm -hmm. And I remember that being a moment of crystallization of conscience for me. Hmm. Here this was somebody who's witness to economic justice and care for the poor was so explicit, really challenging me to embrace the fullness of what a culture of life really looks like Mm -hmm. and what it means to fully embrace Catholic social teaching to embrace the sacramental life. Um, And I remember being very taken aback and sort of mulling this over and being like, oh my gosh, I think I have to be (laughs) Um, (laughs) pro-life. Yeah, and just that moment is a moment that stands out to me in my MDiv experience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, who is poorer than the completely innocent, completely helpless child who, even as as they're born, they, they, they need everything. And the fact that right. the, the humbling nature of the incarnation, that Jesus comes to us as a helpless child, speaks to the, the dignity there and, and the, the amazing gift that that is. So, and sort of this logic became clear, like the logic by which I understood what it means to care for the poor and mm-hmm. what it means to advocate for racial justice and economic justice, that I was denying that logic Okay. if I was holding pro-choice or advocating for pro-choice positions. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that was really convicting for me to see myself as being intellectually inconsistent yeah. <laughs> and really realizing like I couldn't hold this belief if I believed these other things, that they were sort of incompatible and that I had to have a consistent ethic of life, not just sort of pick and choose which which issues I was going to care about and who I was going to care about, but that I had to embrace sort of like this reality that that God gives us the gift of life and that we as Catholics have to care for the lives of others from conception to natural death. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the the word interwoven keeps popping into mm. my mind, not only as you talk about the comprehensive nature of faith and when we receive the Eucharist at Mass, then we're sent out to be Christ to the world and the interwoven nature of it's not just political issues, which side of this thing or that thing are you on, but in, in, the, in the comprehensive nature of the Catholic faith, these things are all tied together. Mm-hmm. And when you pull too many threads out, <laughs> you know, the, the tapestry falls apart. And so to... That's right. Even, even the teachings that are hard, you know, how we're challenged in our faith to try and understand how this, is, this fabric of faith is, is put together and, and what that means for our lives. Yeah, and I experienced that in the MDiv as well. Sort of a, a shift in in disposition from, you know, on certain issues being intransigent and really seeing the, you know, what I perceived as the wrongness of church teaching to a disposition of, I'm Catholic, let me give this the best hearing. Okay. <laughs> and I am ca- I'm called to, to assent to this teaching. How do I do that? Yeah. And so really that dis- spiritual discipline was, was an important thread for me throughout the, my experience of the MDiv, is really giving the church's teaching, the church's witness, a fair hearing, minimally, but also to dispose my heart to, to the truth, mm-hmm. which wasn't always easy because it did require... Um, letting go of some things and being purified of some things. But really, this was a time of real deepening of faith for me, not only in sort of my knowledge of the faith, but in my practice of my faith as well. Mm -hmm. Well, and it makes it all the more amazing that you're doing the work that you do now, knowing, you know, that now that we've heard some of that struggle, because you're in many ways on the leading edge of this conversation mm. in, 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 the, in the McGrath Institute and in conversation with the church and the world. Can you share some of the reasons for taking up this work and some of the experiences that you've had in it? Yeah, so when I, when I was finishing the MDiv, I really wanted to stay in South Bend. I really loved the work the McGrath Institute was doing. And so, you know, I think very providentially, uh, this position um, became open, and I applied and and got the job. And so there was there was definitely a learning curve in coming up to speed on sort of what all the whole gamut of life issues and what a consistent ethic of life looked like. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things we really try to do in the office is to help people have experiences where they can see the truth for themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and part of that is because that is how I came to a deeper understanding of the faith, was not being told, this is what you have to believe, mm-hmm. but to have those moments that compelled me to deeper contemplation. And so a lot of our work is to try to help people both ask those questions, engage those questions, and hopefully to be transformed by by those questions. So we really strive to advance a consistent ethic of life, which of course has, you know, a certain primacy in in the question of abortion, mm-hmm. but is, as you said, interwoven and integral to all life issues. Sort of once you start to, I think, 
scratch the surface of any particular life issue, you start to see how they're all connected. Yeah. And you start to see sort of these deep layers of interwovenness and the consistency with which the church has upheld human dignity, um, not just for this group, but for for all human beings. Mm-hmm. And so we really try to to help educate. Our, our work is primarily in education, to educate and to form people to both see that sort of like radical integration and to have those experiences where they can have the insight for themselves. I think learning is much more powerful when when you have the insight, when you're led to the insight, but you actually have to, to have the insights. No one's going to have it for you. Mm-hmm. And to have that aha moment. So that's, that's some of the work we try to do in the Institute is create experiences of learning, experiences of formation that are beautiful, that present fidelity to the church teaching, to church teaching in a compelling way, mm-hmm. that don't minimize the challenges and complications that many of these issues raise. Sure. But hold on to that moral truth that the church proclaims. So it's sort of, you know, really trying to account for for the complexity, I think, of our world and of life issues generally and in specific ways, and to really engage that in ways that are authentic and ways that are that are generous without compromising Mm -hmm. what the church teaches to say no there is objective truth here we also realize that lives are messy and the world is messy how do we how do we engage sort of what we are given and what the world presents to us in a way that can evangelize in a way that can bring people closer to the truth in a way that can proclaim the goodness of human life and the sanctity of human life across all stages of human life yeah, and, and we live in messy times now, certainly. At the time that we're recording this, it's been in the news that there could be a possible Supreme Court decision soon that could change the, the laws or, or change mm-hmm. the, the ruling on uh, Roe v. Wade and, other, and the other abortion-related Supreme Court decisions. Mm-hmm. And I think as a Catholic, as a person of faith, I wonder to myself, and maybe others are wondering, what do we do? What do we do at this time? We don't know exactly what's going to happen or how this is going to shake out. Any any kind of insight you could give to us about how to live in, as some people have said, in a post-row world or how to engage a culture, you know, especially for those who might be very upset if, if things change in a significant way. What can we do as people of faith during this time? Yeah, I think the first thing we do is to stay close to the sacraments, especially the sacrament of confession and the sacrament of the Eucharist, Mm -hmm. to pray, to fast, not just for Roe, Doe, and Casey to be overturned, Mm -hmm. but for the conversion of hearts as well and for social structures that support women, children, and families. Yeah. So I think that I would say that that's the first thing. I think we tend to, I tend to at times underrate prayer, underrate fasting, underrate the sacrament of confession. To remember that the Catholic understanding of the dignity of life is a gift. It's a gift that God has entrusted us with Mm -hmm. to proclaim and to proclaim in ways that people can hear 
and we might have to do some clearing away of obstacles before that proclamation can be made. So those are, those are sort of the first two things I would start with in terms of like right now, what can you do? I think supporting you know, your local pregnancy centers, supporting organizations that are doing the work of accompanying women mm-hmm. who are pregnant both during and after pregnancy. Mm-hmm. There's no little girl who says, you know what I want to do when I grow up? I want to have an abortion. Right. It's not a decision that's made in the fullness of freedom. We know from research that often there's pressure, that often there's partner, intimate partner violence is an influencer. Mm -hmm. And this is what I mean by once you scratch the surface of one thing, you start to see how (laughs) both how complex questions are, doesn't change the the objective moral truth but you see how complex systems are yeah and how comprehensive the answer needs to be the law needs to be changed because the law is an instructor of conscience and is an instructor of morality and at the same time we need to create when john paul ii talked about a culture of life he was talking about a a new form of society Mm -hmm. that provides for its weakest members, that provides for the vulnerable, that provides, in this case, for women and for children, that makes it possible, makes it easier to choose life. Mm -hmm. Abortion is not going to go away based on this ruling. Mm -hmm. It will simply be sent back to the states. And so some states will enact egregious laws making their states abortion havens. And so there's still the work to be done of both presenting the beauty of the church's teaching on the human person, of formation and education, of conversion. There's still the work to be done on the policy level of how we enact policy that supports women and children, that provides child care, that provides medical care, that provides meaningful and supportive work. Mm-hmm. So I think all of those, I don't call them challenges, they're opportunities, sure. will exist for us and are ways that we can productively think about what a post-Roe world looks like. It's a really an opportunity, I think, for renewed imagination and for creative response. And much of that work is already being done. Mm-hmm. I think that often it's portrayed as you know, the pro-life movement only cares about birth and there's no support for women. Abortion is their only option. I think those structures, and they've all been grassroots, are there. The models are there. Mm-hmm. And now we have an opportunity to really imagine what support for women and children looks like in our federal policy, in our state-level policy, in our communities. So I, I welcome the ruling, and I also know that the work isn't done. There's still much work to be done on this question. The ruling is for a 15-week ban. That is not what many of us would you know, consider fully pro-life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So while it's an incredibly important step, incredibly important historic ruling, I think we need to be prepared to continue the work uh, both on on the legal and policy front, but also on the formation education front. 
Yeah, it can't be the sort of false finish line that we think, well, now now the work is done. In many ways, it's beginning anew and beginning in a different way. And That's right. And our faith is compelling us and challenging us to, in our time, you know, be Christ's presence in the world in this reality. And so thank you for guiding us in that. I personally find a lot of wisdom in that, and I hope people will as well. So thanks for sharing that with us. I did want to touch on this series that you've been working on with the Sisters of Life because I think it looks really neat and showcases the kind of work that you and the office are able to do. Can you tell us about that, please? Yes. So that work grew out of a conversation with the sisters, gosh, two years ago now. We released a study on Americans' attitudes about abortion. This was the first national-level comprehensive qualitative interview-based study. And what we found was that most Americans don't really know what they think. Mm-hmm. Most Americans are certainly in favor. The, the data show us this, the statistics that Pew and others put together, that most Americans are in favor of restrictions on abortion, but that Americans don't know basics of fetal development. They don't know what our laws actually say. They don't know what Roe did. They don't know what Doe did. They don't know what Casey did. So there might be a general sense that Roe is that case about abortion, but people don't know what what it actually entails. Mm -hmm. So a general real ignorance around abortion, because most people aren't in this work every day, like like I am. They're doing other things. But a real ambivalence toward abortion among the general American public. They want better options for women. They want they want to see abortion significantly reduced. Uh, so this study just sparked conversations. We started having conversations with people. And one of those conversations was with the Sisters of Life. And the Sisters of Life have a beautiful ministry of accompanying women during and after uh, pregnancy, accompanying women experiencing an un- unplanned pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And not just materially. It's great to give, to serve the material needs of women in crisis, but the accompaniment is also spiritual. It's, it's practical. It's really, I think it genuinely is an, is an example of what Pope Francis has said when he talks about accompaniment. Mm-hmm. It's not a one-off. There's a relationship there. There's a real process of understanding the heart of a pregnant woman, of understanding the fears and hopes, of understanding the the choices before her, of real d- deep listening, not listening in order to argue, not listening in order to respond, but to really listening to the heart of another. And so we thought that their ministry was beautiful. And, and so we started talking about how we could make this, their model sort of available to the church. Mm-hmm. We together came up with with this idea of a formation series, sort of like a a formation series in a box or a retreat in a box where folks could watch the series together, have conversation, do personal reflection, grow in sort of a spirituality of life. What is a spirituality of life, of, of joy, of the disposition of listening? What does that look like? And so, yeah, so that was the work of the series, which took about, you know, a year and a half to to produce from start to finish, but I think has the real potential, and we're already seeing it, of impact, both for those who are already involved in the pro-life movement, are already committed, but also for those who might have questions, for those who 
aren't sure what they think, to be exposed to an approach that is holistic, that is beautiful, that is deeply personal and authentic, I think is a real gift to the church. I think the sisters are a gift to the church, and I think the series is a gift to the church as well. Yeah, especially at this time. And so thank you to you and to the sisters for doing that. If people are interested in that, the website is intolifeseries.com. And I'd certainly recommend anybody interested to to check that out. Well, we're we're getting close to the end of our time, though, Jess, unfortunately. And I do want to turn to holiness because that's the promise we make to every listener of the podcast that they'll get to hear the guest perspective on holiness. So could you tell us first who have been some of the models of holiness in your life? Mm, Two saints come to mind immediately. Uh, The first is Ignatius of Loyola. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's because of some of my Jesuit education, but he was just an obstinate guy. (laughs) And and the persistence with, with which God pursued him, pursued his heart, Yeah, I think has continuously been spoken to my heart. I can be very stubborn, can be very, you know, Ignatius was also initially a man of extremes before he sort of found the, the middle road. Mm-hmm. I can be like that. So I identify both with him as a person, but also in terms of God's pursuit of him in, in pursuit of his heart through all of these, you know, winding ways that you wouldn't necessarily expect. So I love St. Ignatius. I love his writings. I love spiritual exercises. I love his witness. Um, another person who actually reminds me also of St. Ignatius is Dorothy Day, mm-hmm. founder of the Catholic Worker Movement. Has, you know, in some ways a similar story to Ignatius, very different, but similar. You know, God pursued her and God captivated her heart. And I think it shows just God's fidelity to each one of us. She's clearly a person who, who was searching, not always in the right places. She's clearly a model of encountering the grace and forgiveness of God mm-hmm. and of putting that into, into concrete action in the world, to witnessing to the fullness and truth of the gospel in her daily life. So I would say Dorothy Day, Ignatius, and just as I'm describing these two witnesses, I'm thinking of St. Augustine, who sort of has a similar, similar profile <laughs> of wandering away from God and God's pursuit of him. His confessions are just such a beautiful witness to, to that love relationship, to God's unflagging pursuit of Augustine's heart and what conversion means what convert how conversion changes us in not just in one facet of our lives but into the very depths of our being to how we are in the world to what we choose to love to what we choose to give ourselves so those would be i think my my top three models of holiness great yeah and i can see some of the parallels in in your own story with some of those saints in this gradual awakening to God's truth and God's word in your life, but also an openness of heart mm-hmm. to what you were discovering and what they were discovering, and that that's, that's important. You, you said earlier that conversion is ongoing and lifelong and never done, and you've definitely exhibited that to us. As you 
seek after holiness in your own life. Has there been anything that's been particularly effective or a go-to thing for you that's been really important in your life of faith? I'm finding always, but especially recently, the sacrament of confession to just being something that I'm more and more drawn to, to encountering God's mercy and forgiveness. I think that it's really easy to identify the sins of other people. (laughs) (laughs) And confession, I think, is just, it reminds me that take the beam out of your own eye before you try to get the speck out of the other person. Mm -hmm. It just reminds me of how great a sinner I am and how great God's mercy is. Um, I think in my work, I get frustrated with people a lot. I get frustrated with points of view a lot. It's challenging work. And Mm -hmm. I think the, the sacrament of confession has really helped me remain focused on God, keep the focus on God and not on, it can be very easy to get sidetracked into polarization, but this is about proclaiming the gospel, the gospel of life. So really keeping that centered in my life. I'd say the other really recent thing would be marriage. I think marriage points out your flaws (laughs) in all sorts of ways. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, marriage. I I recently got married about a year ago and you just, you learn a whole new set of limitations and a whole new set of areas where you didn't even know you needed to grow, but Mm -hmm. there, there you have, you have God giving them to you again and on a daily basis. So I would say, yeah, marriage very recently and the sacrament of confession, I think are two, two ways that that pursuit of holiness is manifested in my life, particularly right now. Yeah. Well, congratulations on your recent marriage. And I think that's really true that that selfishness that sometimes we easily carry with us really can get rooted out when you're <laughs> living that daily call to to love another person in that way. That's right. That's right. Well, Jess, thank you for your witness. Thank you for your work. Uh, this is inspiring work. It's really compelling at this time. And as you mentioned, it's not easy. And so I'm certainly inspired by what you do and grateful for what you do. But just thanks for your honesty and your candor as you shared your life with us. I could keep going, you know, in this conversation, but we'll end it for now. And I I think a lot of people will find a lot of hope and and truth in what you're saying. So thanks for sharing your story with us. Thank you, Dan, for having me. It's been really fun. Great. Well, that ends this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith in Deep podcast. If you'd like to subscribe to the podcast, we'd welcome you to do that at a service of your choosing, certainly to rate the podcast if you enjoyed it, and most of all, to share it if you know of someone who might benefit from this story or might really find hope in what Jess or any of the other guests we have had on have said. Please do share it. And of course, we always invite you to subscribe to our Faith ND Daily Gospel Reflection at faith.nd.edu slash sign up. We thank you for joining us. And until next time, you'll be in our prayers. God bless. Mm-hmm.